Welcome to Mediocre from Minnesota Daily Johnversations, a snack-sized podcast delivering a frequent dose of mediocrity that you didn't know you needed. Make sure to follow Mediocre from Minnesota on Instagram and Facebook, and add us on your preferred podcast app. Today's topics are the Pez Bandit, Mumbo Jumbo Monday, and Frozen Eggs. But first, let's hear from today's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Pete's Pencil Palace. You won't find any pens at Pete's. What you will find are the sharpest, cleanest, full erasered pencils in all of North Dakota. That's Pete's Pencil Palace, where number twos are the shit. All right, so I watched a documentary on Netflix the other day titled The Pez Bandit, and uh, and it was wonderful. I'm a huge documentary fan. Uh, in college, I, I took a documentary film class where we would uh, watch some different documentaries. We actually created some ourselves, um, but I just find them really fascinating. I think the whole like real-life aspect of it, um, really getting to know somebody uh, through the film and, and kind of um, just experiencing you know what they experienced or, or getting to know more about their life is just, I think, really fascinating for me. Anyways, this, this documentary um, was about a gentleman um, who... I think he's OCD, uh, bipolar, uh, maybe, you know, maybe some other diagnoses there, but just a really interesting dude who uh, had these little quirks and intricacies. But uh, so the film starts out with him uh, starting to save cereal boxes or showing that, you know, he started saving cereal boxes. He's just really interested in, you know, the different covers and the, um, the, the one-offs and the unique boxes, you know, like Wheaties and all the different sugary cereals. And so he would collect all these. Well, he started going to like recycling centers and, and picking them out of there. And I don't know if you remember, but they used to have the, like the little box top things. I don't, they probably still do, but they had these box tops where you could collect so many and you would send in for toys or, you know, random, random things. And, so he would be collecting all these and sending these in and he'd be getting just these piles and piles of toys and, and different items that, you know, that were the free items. And so he ended up taking those free items and those toys and stuff and he'd go to these toy shows and he'd sell them. So basically he's getting them for free and he's selling them and make, he's making some money. Um, and actually he claims that the reason why they have the rule one per household is because of him, because he was basically abusing the system. And so they had to make changes so that uh, um, other people couldn't do that. So kind of clever on his part. But while he was at one of the toy shows, he saw uh, somebody selling a pet dispenser and he goes up to this person, I think that, that bought it and asked, uh, you know, what's the, what's the deal with the Pez, you know, dispensers and, is, you know, kind of is there a market for it? And this person basically says, like, if you want to get into Pez, you got to you gotta go over to Europe and and uh, go to the factory. Uh, so he, him and his 20-year-old son end up traveling to Eastern Europe to find this Pez factory. And this is in the 1980s where, you know, it doesn't have cell phone, can't Google where this is. Um, there's really you know, he can't find a way to just simply go straight to this factory. So they get over there, they're driving around looking for this factory, looking for this factory, you know, 
got lost at one point, and then eventually as they're driving around, they, they have a Pez dispenser with them with the packaging. They look on the back of the package. Oh, duh, the factory address is right on the back. So they figure it out. They go go to this factory, and uh, the guard you know, is questioning them. They basically play stupid. For some reason, the guard lets them in. And while they're there, they meet this Marcos, who is a, a designer of Pez dispensers. And he must have got along with them really well, really liked them. So he gave this gave them this really rare one and then basically allowed them to buy whatever they wanted. So now Pez dispensers, there's a Pez International and then Pez USA. And Marcos designed for Pez International and they would send their designs over to Pez USA and oftentimes supposedly they would reject um, his designs for one reason or another. Didn't meet their criteria. So there's all these international Pez dispensers that aren't coming into the USA um, that are, I guess, rare for the people in the U.S. So this guy buys, and his son, buy just duffel bags full of these Pez dispensers. They bring them back to the U.S., and at uh, customs, they get questioned and searched. You know, they're asking, are you you able to bring these across? You know, you don't own the, the patent for these or or you don't have, um, you know, jurisdiction to sell those in, in the U.S. And they look it up and, well, Pez USA never filed with Customs and Borders, so they can't legally do anything about it. So basically, because they messed up, he's able to bring these in. He starts selling them on the black market, and he's making piles of money. I think one they sold for like $1,250 for one, and this is back in the 80s. So quite a bit of money. I mean, even even now would be quite a bit of money. And they're selling all these, and they you know he starts going back and forth, and he's bringing all these dispensers in the U.S. and and kind of just selling them on the black market. And he starts getting a little paranoid that you know Pez USA is following him, or the president actually he's titled the president of Pez USA is you know trying to stop him from doing this, and he's and he's mad that you know these. Pez are being sold on the, the black market and secondary. So eventually, he uh, this guy gets, the, the Pez bandit gets cut off from the factories in Europe. So he, he's not able to, uh, to buy from them directly anymore. And that was likely because of pressure from Pez USA. So he comes up with the idea that he's going to create his own. So he starts designing his own Pez dispensers and then has one of the the international factories make them and he was guaranteed you know or told that he would be the only one that you know could make those nobody else could could make those same ones that he was designing and uh so he he gets all these i think he put up $250,000 of his own um got a $250,000 loan puts all of his you know money into to this this big plan of his and he's hoping i think I think it says he's hoping to make like two and a half million off the five hundred thousand dollars he invests, and uh, he goes to this this Pez, Pez trade show, and when he gets there, he sees Pez USA with a booth, and they are selling his designs that he made at their booth. So they found out that he had made these. They made a bunch, basically copied his designs, but they. 
They labeled them differently. They called them misfits uh, because they didn't really fit with their designs. They were, you know, they were a little more unique. They're selling them for a dollar ninety nine at this show. He's hoping to get twenty to twenty five dollars a piece because he paid five dollars a piece. So basically, they put him out of business. He ends up losing two hundred fifty thousand dollars on the deal, um, and you know, in the video uh, shows him burning them at the end. But the the documentary is really interesting um, because they do a lot of like recreated video, and it's kind of kind of over the top, and um, it's it's more of a production than most documentaries. Most documentaries will only use like real footage or very little re, um, recreations or you know, just, just to kind of show the point, but this one was more of a production. It was, it was entertaining for sure. Um, I don't know that they even needed to do that because I felt the story was pretty entertaining. And this, this gentleman, the Pez bandit was really entertaining, but he's like a legend in the Pez community. And at the end, he ends up going back to, uh, he kind of like hid from the community for a while. Cause I think he was kind of embarrassed that, um, Pez USA ended up uh, putting him out of business, but kind of a rock star in the Pez community and he's signing autographs at the end and these people just, you know, think he's just like a Pez legend, but really good documentary. I know, I don't know if I ruined it, even knowing all that information, highly recommend, check it out. Just really entertaining and just kind of a quirky, quirky little documentary. Next, we've got Mumbo Jumbo Monday, where we've got a couple of news headlines that um, are odd, wacky, weird so the first one is an Australian snake hunter discovered the second most venomous snake in the world in a toddler's underwear drawer. Mark Pelly, based in Melbourne, was asked to remove a five-foot eastern brown snake from a three-year-old's bedroom. So the mom went in to get some clothes from her, for her son and found this snake inside the drawer of, of his dresser. And they kind of figured out how it got in there that she was doing laundry, basically, had clothes hanging up on the line. The snake must have been on the clothes, around him, whatever. She throws him in the basket, brings it inside, puts puts everything away. Well, people are wondering, you know, because this is posted on Facebook, people are wondering, how does a mom not see that this snake is in the laundry? And apparently these things weigh almost nothing. Um, and this, uh, this snake hunter or, uh, the pest control guy was saying like, you know, this is actually quite frequent. People will bring them in in bags and stuff because they just don't notice them. They're, they're so lightweight, even though they are, you know, this one is five feet, five feet long. Um, but I guess these snakes, like said, second most venomous snake in the world, they're fast moving, aggressive and known for their bad temper. Um, I guess they can grow up to seven feet and length, but I can't even imagine opening a dresser drawer and even the smallest non-venomous snake in there just freaking out and running, but one that you know could potentially kill you uh, in your underwear drawer. I guess it's better than finding it after the underwear already on. Uh, that would be much, much worse, but uh, uh, definitely don't want to live anywhere where that is that, that is something that could happen to me. Next, we've got a Michigan woman who received a 100-year-old postcard in the mail. Brittany Keach checked her mailbox one morning, and it was you know full of the usual, usual junk mail, bills, all that good stuff. But uh, atop the pile of different flyers and bills, uh, she saw something that looked 
looked a little odd. It was a tattered and time-worn postcard. At first, she didn't think much of it, just that, you know, it's old, interesting. But as she started to look at it, uh, she realized it was a, a one-cent George Washington stamp on on the postcard, and it was postmarked October 29th, 1920. On the front of the postcard is a Halloween illustration, including a black cat, pumpkins, witch, an owl, and a broomstick, plus a play on words, which would you rather be, a goose or a pumpkin head? Now, I don't really get the joke, but I'm sure it was probably funny in the 1920s as uh, she kind of looked through the the postcard and tried to decipher the, the cursive that was on the postcard. Remember that when people actually wrote in cursive? It appeared to be addressed to Mrs. Roy McQueen um, until she realized it was from, okay, this is one one family member to another family member. Letter starts, Dear cousins, we are quite well, but mother has awful lame knees. It is awful cold here. And ends with, don't forget to write us. Um, and then followed by a question asking whether Roy got his pants fixed yet. So big news. Apparently, everybody was wondering if Roy got those pants fixed. I hope he did. Uh, I don't know if they... They found out if he did or not, but it was the letter was signed by a Flossie Burgess. Flossie, what a name! What a great name! So she, this gal who got the uh, the postcard, tries to find out who who sent it or if there's any family members you know that they can get it to now. So she posts on this Facebook page, um, her local town. A couple people end up kind of like taking on the case, and they they try to find out uh, if there are any relatives that they can get it to. So they do some genealogy work. And they actually do find the grandniece of the recipient of the postcard. So I think they're going to get the, the postcard to her. So they ask the, the post office, how, how could this have happened? They basically say it likely got stuck behind like a baseboard um, in some old, you know, maybe sorting machinery at, at an old uh, post office that was getting remodeled. And then so as they're taking this stuff all apart, comes out from where it was hiding and they they run it through and what's crazy is that they you know they run it through and it actually got there so i don't know how even though it didn't have the correct postage on it how it got there just completely random so kind of a, a neat story i was gonna google and see what the the postcard actually looked like if there's a an image on the web just to check it out that it was kind of a cute funny story next topic is frozen eggs so i'm not sure if everybody's aware but uh We've got a dozen laying hens that we uh, keep in a small shed on our property. And also, if you're not aware, the last few days have been bitter cold, freezing temperatures, like literally highs below zero. So that's the high temperature is negative degrees. Um, so definitely not not enjoying that. But we have those uh, dozen laying hens. We don't heat the coop uh, for multiple reasons. You know, part of it's me being cheap, but part of it's you actually don't want to heat the the coops because then the chickens are, you know, like released. They get like moisture on their body from like going outside because we still have them, you know, they have access to the outdoors. So if, if they were warm, they go outside, they get cold, they come back in and then start warming up again. That moisture is actually worse for them. Um, you kind of want them to just uh, maintain, you know, a, a good temperature and they've got feathers, right? They can, they can fend for themselves. They're not going to 
They're not going to freeze to death. Although I'm a little worried about our chickens because we did have a rooster. We actually had three roosters. Uh, one we gave to some friends. Another one, I think we ended up just killing it because two roosters for a dozen hens was just too many. They were getting attacked by both of them. It was just n- not a good situation. So we kept the the largest, prettiest one. And uh turns out, no, that one on its own too was just wreaking havoc on the hens just getting after them, um, actually to the point where like they're missing feathers all over their back because he's jumping them, <laughs> jumping on them all the time and uh, pulling on their feathers. And so we get rid of him too, give him to a, a neighbor, hoping that, all right, their feathers are going to grow back. Well, they never did on a lot of them. Um, so they've got these like bare backs and just feel terrible for them because they're, they're in the cold. Although I have seen some chicken sweaters that people will knit. Not that I'm going to do that, but I guess that could be an option. So chickens normally molt uh, where they lose most of, not all of their feathers and then grow new ones. And they tend to do this before winter. Obviously, they want new fresh feathers to keep them warm uh, over the winter. Our chickens, I don't know why, but they haven't done it yet. I hope they don't do it now, at least not not right now because that would be a terrible time to do it. So they never molted, didn't get their new feathers. Hopefully they survive, <laughs> hopefully survive the winter. But during this, this this cold spell, they obviously are still laying eggs, although not, not as much as they normally would be. But I'm having to go out a couple times a day because normally I you know just go out and feed them, give them fresh water, pick eggs in the morning. Well, if I, if I did that now, they'd be frozen frozen little rock eggs uh, by the time I got out there. So I'm going at least a couple times a day to hopefully pick. And even then I'm still finding frozen ones because they're just freezing that fast. It's that, that cold in there. But uh, I think, I mean, you probably still could eat them, but when they're cracked and they're open, um, you know, they're introduced to some of the bacteria if chickens are sitting on there and you don't want, obviously it's not worth it getting sick over, over trying to save, save one of the eggs. But uh like I said, hopefully the chickens make it through the winter. If not, I guess we'll be having chicken noodle soup for our meal prep this week. Well, that's going to wrap up today's show. Thanks for listening to Daily Conversations, a snack size podcast delivering a frequent dose of mediocrity that you didn't know you needed.